Hi, everybody. This is Francesca Maxime, and welcome to Wise Girl for January 22nd, 2019. Wise Girl, really the place where we invite you to discover your inner wisdom, whether it's a girl or a guy, whoever the little one is that may be inside that knows things and is aware in a way that sometimes we forget as we get a little bit older. Um, I have a beautiful guest here today that I'm so privileged to have studied, but also now be able to be in conversation with uh, Dr. Judith Lewis Herman, an American psychiatrist, researcher, teacher, and author who is focused on the understanding and treatment of incest and traumatic stress. Herman's professor of clinical psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of training at the Victims of Violence Program in the Department of Psychiatry at the Cambridge Health Alliance in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a founding member of the Women's Mental Health Collective. She is the author of a couple of seminal works, Trauma and Recovery, The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror, with a recent update in the epilogue, um, which I will talk to her about and share with you, as well as Father-Daughter Incest, uh, really exploring an issue that many people still find it terribly uh, challenging to discuss publicly. And she is just really a gift and a joy and is also working on a new project um, that we can get into also again, trauma and recovery. And then she also added, um, because again, the personal is the political and vice versa, uh, the prologue to this, um, the dangerous case of Donald Trump discussing, in some ways, clinicians' role um, in speaking about <clears throat> trauma as it plays out on a larger stage. Dr. Herman, thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Such a joy uh, to, to speak with you. And I guess we can begin perhaps by maybe just a general question about why your interest in trauma and why your interest perhaps in uh, trauma as it pertains, especially as your first book from 1981 uh, talked about father-daughter incest. Um, well, that's a long story. Um, I guess one way of thinking about it is that uh, I came of age uh, in the time of the second wave of the feminist revolution, if you will. Um, and I was part of a consciousness raising group at the same time as I began my training as a psychiatric resident. And, um, my first two patients were women who had made suicide attempts and been hospitalized. Um, and as we got to know one another, it uh, became clear that both of them were incest survivors. And that it also became clear to me that the... Um, there, the incest had really been an early induction, if you will, into the role of a sex slave and uh, a sex object, and that seemed to have everything to do with their uh, chronic depression, their self-loathing, their self-hatred, and their suicidality. Um, now, at that time, the received wisdom was that incest was exceedingly rare and 
that women fantasized about incest because this was the expression of our deepest desires. Well, I don't know, that didn't, that, um, that didn't make sense to me. On the other hand, being part of a consciousness raising group it had become clear to me how much violence against women was, uh, uh, and particularly sexual exploitation was part of um, women's common experience. And so the idea that incest was one case per million, as it said in the comprehensive text of psychiatry at that time, that didn't fit with the idea that my first two patients just happened to be incest survivors. That was already two cases per million. Um, and um, luckily I did have some supervisors who also took this seriously and um, so that I also got to see how much better my patients felt when they were able to talk about it, when they uh, were, their experiences were validated and when they weren't blamed and shamed and um, dismissed as, you know, when this wasn't dismissed as some kind of fantasy, but a, a real experience of oppression that had formed their, their development. Uh, they got better when they were able to talk about it and, and, and received a kind of compassionate uh, experience of, of witnessing. Um, so that was also an important lesson. You know, it, it, really, it really happens and it helps to talk about it and, and be validated. So, um, uh, in some ways, that kind of set my career. Uh, from that point on, I, you know, listen to survivors, validate them. It, 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 the both the reality of their experience, the the reality of the harm that was done, and the ways that that harm can it can never be undone, but people can recover. So uh, there you have trauma and recovery in a nutshell. Yes, yes, thank you. I loved um, your explanation and, and certainly a detailed story, but you condensed it beautifully. And um, I really appreciate your paying attention to what they were telling you and going into um, their 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 direct experience um, and um, and your continued work on that for for this book as you said um, I I also know that this book begins with talking about how uh, Freud Sigmund Freud um, also uh, sort of happened upon the same uh, observation and acknowledged it and then pulled away from that um, for reasons that you describe in the book also. And <clears throat> I'm wondering if that's worth mentioning now also in terms of how that then has shaped the line of inquiry um, around uh, what's transpired since then and coming up with numbers like one in a million, as you say, that are not true. 
Yeah, well, I think the, the lesson I took from that is that when you're talking about um, traumatic experiences, when you're talking about experiences of interpersonal violence and exploitation, um, these, are, these are horrible experiences and the general tendency of witnesses, of bystanders, if you will, um, may be to not want to know about it or not want to, not want to deal with it. And uh, because if you have to deal with it, you have to hold perpetrators accountable. You have to support victims. You have to be engaged. And you can't do that alone. You need a political movement that validates uh, human rights, if you will, uh, to, to ally with victims rather than perpetrators, and uh, to try to hold perpetrators accountable. Uh, it's hard, and it's scary. And wouldn't it be just so much easier if we didn't know about it and we didn't hear about it and sort of see no evil, hear no evil, that sort of thing. Um, so without a social movement, without a political movement, um, people will turn away. Uh, so I, I, what seemed important to me about uh, the initial uh, discovery, if you will, of uh, trauma as the basis for what was then known as hysteria, uh, was that it was discovered at a time of a democracy movement where the impetus for studying women with hysteria at all had been to, um, uh, uh, as part of an anti-clerical uh, movement, to, to show that these women were not possessed by de demons, they were, and that a scientific rather than a religious uh, formulation, if you will, could lead to understanding and cure. Both Freud and Janet, who never did disavow his discoveries, were students of Jean-Martin Charcot in France, in Paris, uh, Charcot was part of a democracy movement that formed the Third Republic in France and uh, was in deeply engaged in a struggle with the Catholic Church, which was uh, on the side of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of royalty, basically, of a... Of a uh, an authoritarian form of government. So um, when Freud moved back to Vienna and discovered that not only the uh, the poor and and uh, 
underclass women who were patients in the Salpetriere in Paris, but um, middle class, upper class women in proper households were complaining of hysteria. And when you talk to them, if you listen to them, they would start telling you about childhood sexual abuse. Uh, so when he, he actually published these discoveries and compared them to the, the discovery of the source of the Nile, which was then in the late 19th century, um, uh, very much a contemporary issue. Uh, if, he, if there had been Nobel Prizes back then, when he, dis, when he claimed this was the, you know, the discovery of the source of the Nile, it would, was like saying, uh, we've discovered the uh, structure of the genetic material in 1953. Um, and when, in fact, instead of admiration and uh, professional uh, success, this discovery was disavowed by his contemporaries. Freud dis disavowed his discoveries. He, he, he didn't, when he, by the way, his disavowal was not based on data. His discovery that um, hysteria had something to do with childhood uh, uh, adversities, as they're now called, um, was based on talking to patients. His discovery that, in fact, this was just really a fantasy, not so much. Uh, so he backed away and really on the, on the foundations of this disavowal, we, we had a whole uh, set of theories about the importance of fantasy life in human development. Those, those theories were also important, but they were based on the disavowal of listening to women. Um, so as long as we had psychoanalytic thinking as the dominant paradigm in psychiatry, we had textbooks that said incest is one case per million. Uh, once that, you know, the par that paradigm is no longer dominant, not really, not only or not mainly because of feminist critiques, but uh, because of the, uh, the, the advent of the, um, the, uh, the, the era of, Prozac, if you will, <laughs> the, the era of uh, uh, the biological thinking in psychiatry. And um, I, I, I should say that much has been lost with the loss of that dominant paradigm, but one of the things that I do not mourn is the sexist assumptions that went along with that paradigm. It's a long answer to your question. No, I think it's a beautiful answer because it sets the context for so much of what had transpired since then and a lot of what is still around today. 
that people kind of take in and sort of um, uh, pseudo, you know, thoughts or, or, or ideas about, about things that, that may longer, may no longer be uh, valid and, 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 and proven as such. You mentioned the word uh, adversities uh, in reference to childhood sexual abuse or incest and these kinds of um, scenarios. Um, I, w I had interviewed Dr. Vincent uh, Felitti uh, about a month ago uh, with that uh, Kaiser Permanente study in the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences study and the ACE scores. And I know that Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is uh, continuing with that work in uh, populations uh, that have more socioeconomic and racial diversity than the original study had. But I'd like to um, go back for two points. One is, can you really just describe what would be considered very in very clear terms incest or childhood sexual abuse and sort of what the rates are if you will currently um, that are you know research uh, backed up and also um, perhaps uh, you know how it affects men or, or women differently because I don't think it's anything that anybody wants to talk about still for perhaps the political reasons that you discussed but also for the personal reasons because you're you're sort of coming against a family structure or a political structure or even a patriarchal structure and um, structural changes as you say are very difficult to make when you're coming at it from an individual level so can we just let people know a few facts if you will oh sure um, uh, the best studies that we have are large-scale epidemiological studies um, of the, the whole population. Um, so, uh, and those are usually done by random samples, random sampling, um, and uh, we have couple of studies now. One, the Violence Against Women study, which was carried out in, I think, the late 90s by a, a collaboration between the National Institute of Justice and the CDC. And then uh, we have a more recent one in the, uh, I think, 2014 or so, uh, carried out by the CDC. Um, in both cases, it seemed as though the rates for women of sexual abuse in childhood uh, were 20% plus or minus five or so, three, plus or minus three, you say. Um, so one woman in five. Um, most of the abusers were family members, uh, fathers, uncles, grandfathers, older brothers, um, and then less commonly, but still fairly often, uh, people known, known and trusted authority figures, uh, clergy, uh, teachers, coaches, uh, scout leaders, that sort of thing. Um, and um, so that's the, uh, the prevalence hadn't changed, basically, from the studies done in the, in the late part of the 20th century to 
the more recent studies and say with that, that for women about 20% for men um, one two three percent somewhere around there um, again with when um, boys are abused most commonly they are abused by um, men uh, older men uh, either in the family or uh, other authority trusted authority figures great thank you for sharing that um, just to be clear on that now one of the things that um, has been a political movement is the Me Too movement or the Time's Up movement that has really sort of galvanized attention around this particular issue as it was in fact started um, for these very reasons by Toronto Burke, um, highlighting in fact um, uh, young uh, black girls, young women, young uh, that had been uh, abused, uh, molested, uh, assaulted, uh, sexually uh, harassed by um, their early caregivers, uh, often family members, and that it sort of got traction when it became public uh, around um, sort of celebrities being uh, the ones who maybe served as a figurehead around being the um, linchpin, so to speak, for highlighting that high-profile people uh, not only are the victims of this at a young age, but also uh, in their professional life in terms of, of sexual harassment. So it sort of took on this tone of sexual harassment in the workplace uh, or um, kind of um, an idea of, 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 of workplace safety or, or, or equality or even equity, all of which are critical. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also wondering if we can continue to go back to the root um, of what you have very well documented and noted <clears throat> is the truth behind the fact that many of the folks who experience sexual trauma later in life have been sexually assaulted as children. Uh, yes, that's, that's right. Um, the, uh, the data on that, are, that fact are very strong and very concerning because it does seem that having been victimized in childhood sets one up for further victimization in adult life. Um, the odds, if, if you've been sexually abused as a child, the odds of then as a young adult being a rape victim are doubled. Uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, if you've uh, been uh, physically abused as a child, the odds of then ending up in a domestic or sexually abused, the odds of ending up in a domestic violence relationship are sometimes tripled or quadrupled. So um, it seems as though um, if you will, childhood abuse uh, is a is a training you know, for 
uh, a training for subordination, uh, a training that says you do not deserve to protect yourself and you don't know how to protect yourself. The only, the, the price of having any attention or affection may be to have no limits on access to your body. Um, and, uh, and that though um, poor women and children, women and children of color, native uh, women are certainly at higher risk. Um, all women are at risk, including celebrity women, so that the culture of the ex sexual exploitation, if you will, um, affects all of us. And uh, so that uh, even powerful celebrity movie stars uh, are subject to the casting couch, to uh, a, a culture that tells us that our bodies are at the mercy of more powerful men. Um, thank you so much for that. I think it's really important for um, listeners to really sort of take that in and pause because I think that um, one of the things that um, I remember years ago when I interviewed Gloria Stein and was talking about power over versus power with, and um, really um, that's what you're speaking to is that there's this uh, fuel about uh, someone needing to be subordinate, right? And it can't be me, so it has to be you. And how can I set up a system whereby that can be something that can not only be perpetuated, but done so in silence and secrecy so that it's not found out and it can be continued. So it actually functions and works quite well and has for many years. And now that there is some light being sort of shown on there, you know, things can get uh, not as moldy as quickly, so to speak, when they, you know, have some air on there drying, drying it out. Um, you talked about I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the systemic piece of this. Um, it kind of flows into that. Um, victims and perpetrators. We will get into um, your sort of tripartite recommendations for trauma resolution, regaining a sense of safety, active work on the trauma, advance to a new post-traumatic life. We will get into that. But I'd like to also talk about who is offending and why. Ah, well. And how, and how do we stop it there or can we or what's that about? Well, um, I mean, the good news is that um, even though systemically uh, women are subordinate to men, we live in a patriarchal system, as most women do, um, virtually all women do. Um, most men do not sexually assault or sexually abuse women and children. That's the good news. Uh, seems to be that about somewhere five to ten percent of men um, take advantage of their uh, superior power to 
exploit women sexually. What do we know about offenders? Very little. Because, and why they, why? I, 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 I certainly don't know. Um, I wouldn't pretend to know. And the literature that I've seen is, it's very sparse. I mean, mainly because of secrecy, of course, is the, is the first line of defense for perpetrators. And so um, most perpetrators don't volunteer to be studied um, and only can be studied when they're caught. And since the vast majority of perpetrators are not caught, the only ones we have we study are the ones that somehow manage to get caught, and they I think are quite unrepresentative sample of perpetrators. Um, and then I think the other thing is, of course, you have a spectrum. So that, uh, in, for example, in campus sexual assault, you have the repeat offenders who are the the kind of the the um, the people really invested in um, rape culture, you know, who, who organize their fraternities or their uh, sports team to, you know, let's go out and get laid. You know, let's set up a party where we spike the drinks and we set up a room where we can have a little run a train on a woman who's passed out drunk. Somebody, there are the people who conspire to do that and who lead that kind of um, male bonding over the bodies of women. And then there are the people who sort of go along with it. They wouldn't initiate it on their own, but they, um, no, it, it seems like everybody's doing it, so why not me? Um, and then there are the young men who, you know, get out of the, you know, if they see what's going on, they get out of there, or they even help women get out of there. Um, there are the bystanders who are passive, and then there are the active bystanders who uh, resist. So we have a spectrum, and we don't know. We don't understand that whole spectrum of behavior. And I, I don't think it's been well studied. I mean, there are some studies that um, suggest that, for example, most sexual assaults on campus are carried out by repeat offenders. I don't know if, that, if that's actually true or whether the, there are more sort of um, people who will sort of go along for the ride, so to speak. Um, I think we need much more attention, much more study uh, to really find out what's going on with perpetrators. Um, of course, what we do know is that all male groups foster this kind of behavior, whether you have it's an all-male priesthood or an all-male sports team or an all-male fraternity, when you have male-controlled spaces, this is the sort of thing that, that often goes on.
Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And and again, some folks are are studying. I think um, masculinity as a as a as a construct um, or patriarchy, you know, as a construct. And perhaps there will be some answers there as it pertains to this issue more in particular. Shifting back to um, trauma resolution to what survivors um, do, which is more where I have focused uh, my own study and, and practices um, over the last several years. Uh, for those who have been victimized, that 20% of women, of girls, um, many find a way to carry on. There's a resilience, um, resi resiliency. Um, many are more affected um, than others in terms of debilitation, suicidal ideation, dissociation, um, various forms of, you know, what some would call maladaptive, I call them very adaptive behaviors at the time of the onset of the trauma that perhaps uh, linger um, even though the current environment may in fact be more safe. So let's go to step one, regaining a sense of safety, whether through a therapeutic relationship, medication, relaxation exercises, or a combination of all three. I put in parentheses next to this in my notes, restoring trust or building trust. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's how you would characterize it at all, but can you talk a little bit about that first step for a survivor in terms of healing? Well, uh Safety, of course, is, is also a social construct. I mean, you can do lots of deep breathing and that sort of thing, but if you're not in an environment that um, promotes safety, um, you're not going to feel safe anywhere. So creating some sort of safe base for survivors is step one. And... And a, a lot of the early work of the women's movement was doing exactly that. So that, for example, the creation of battered women's shelters was the beginning of a social dis creation of a, of a safe place. When I was a resident, there were no battered women's shelters. And basically, the, the psychiatric ward became a shelter. Um, we had... One of my two first patients, who was an incest survivor, had also be, uh, been involved in, uh, was deeply enmeshed in a battering relationship and really had made her suicide attempt only um, after she, she became convinced that her husband was going to kill her eventually and she might as well just be dead. Um, when... Uh, when, in fact, our, our, our um, psychiatric ward became a de facto shelter for this woman, um, and I remember telling my supervisor or the, the, the director of the service, you know, this, this woman is really this, uh, we, can't, we can't discharge her home because her husband's too dangerous. He has weapons. He's been extremely violent. He, um, he's extremely possessive and controlling, and um, she will kill herself, or he will kill her if we let her go home. So we were. Just, so she was using the ward as a place to start arranging, maybe finding an. Uh, separating from her husband and finding another place to live. When he got wind of that, he came on the unit 
and he started threatening the unit director. And boy, oh boy, you've never seen anybody. Uh, the police were called so fast. It was a real lesson to me. And, you know, when, when this man threatened another man of higher social status, bam, the police were called in a minute and he was locked up. Uh, when, when he was only beating up his wife, hey, that was, his, that was his prerogative. And so we start with defining safe spaces, safe places. Um, and that's true, by the way, whether we're talking about um, violence against women or whether we're talking about combat, whether we're talking about torture survivors, First, we need to get people to safety. When they're not in safety, they're still going to have post-traumatic symptoms because as, as you said, they're, they're constantly being re-exposed um, to danger. So, um, so yes, a safe environment, that means um, things like money. We talk about money. In therapy and where is it coming from you know if it's coming from daddy and he's gonna you know you're you're a college student and this is the first time you've disclosed incest you know but he's gonna pull the plug and it's if you if this gets out maybe you need to drop out of college for a while to get a job and get your own money things like that so so that's part of safety. And then uh, the other things, as you mentioned, if you don't feel safe in your body, you can't feel safe anywhere. So various um, biological and physiological methods for creating safety. We talk about eat, eating and sleeping and creating a, a, a cycle uh, a, lot, a lot of trauma survivors need to be vigilant at night and so they don't sleep. Uh, and, but, you know, if you want to participate in most social life, you need to be awake in the day and sleep at night. So getting a, a healthy sleep cycle, getting a healthy eating cycle, taking care of your body, learning how to breathe, all those things are part of safety. And then, you know, safe relationships, rebuild, figuring out who's trustworthy and who isn't. And spending time with the people who are trustworthy, not the people who aren't. That's also part of safety planning. Yeah, and I really appreciate you saying that because I think that a lot of folks whose, vi whose boundaries have been violated so um, profoundly at such a young age um, have a challenging time assessing uh, what actually is safe versus what should be safe. Meaning, yeah, and feeling entitled to set some boundaries and say no. And I think that in my experience, some of the reasons why some folks who have suffered abuses are not comfortable setting boundaries and saying no can be twofold. One, there's a perception that they're not being nice or kind or gentle or compassionate to even use more contemporary language. I'm and the other- Feminine. 
compliant. Right. Compliant, feminine, yep. Mm-hmm. And then the other um, point would be uh, deserving. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't know what I deserve. I feel like I deserve something better, but do I really? Um, and then the other point would be rejection or fear of rejection or abandonment, mm-hmm. that if I dare speak or say, then I won't get whatever crumbs or goodies may be otherwise available. Yeah. I mean, if you feel that the crumbs and goodies, as you say, are controlled by powerful men, then maybe you just have to submit to whatever they say to get, to get any sort of benefit. Uh, and so part of safety also means discovering other sources of caring protection, other sources of reward and pleasure. Right. And, and, and it's interesting because it's coming to mind now as Bitterman's chart of coercion um, as it pertains to isolation and trivializing things and um, mm-hmm. the ways in which oftentimes um, perpetrators, whether they're uh, within a family, like around incest or childhood sexual abuse, or even in a workplace setting or educational mm-hmm. institution where there's power over, um, that those kinds of tactics can be used and are used uh, to control in much the same way that sexual abuse, for example, is perpetuated also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we, um, for training purposes, one of the graphics I like best is the violence wheel that has been created by the uh, um, uh, I'm blocking on, but it's in, in um, Minnesota in uh, and uh, it shows power and control in the center of the wheel and then these various techniques, uh, of which violence is only one. Uh, uh, violence and threat of violence, but then uh, control of bodily functions, intermittent rewards, uh, isolation, degradation, uh, and worst of all, forcing people to um, violate their own moral codes and abuse others. Um, and by the way, uh, uh, a similar graphic that is paired with the violence wheel is the equality wheel, in which um, sort of the demonstration of another basis for a relationship, um, respect, uh, honesty, shared responsibility, things like that. Um, the, the methods of coercive control that are so well documented in the violence wheel were really first documented um, in the Amnesty International Report on Torture in 1973, I think it was. And they basically interviewed torture survivors um, from around the world and who testified to these methods, um, which are used to express total dominance over another person. 
uh, one of the things I was always curious about is we know that these methods are taught by clandestine police forces to one another, our own CIA was for many years teaching these methods. Um, but I always wondered how, how batterers and incest perpetrators know these methods because uh, they're not, you know, they're not, as far as we know, part of an organized um, uh, rogue. They're not part of a political uh, terror organization. Um, and I think probably the, the vector is the commercial sex industry. Um, the, the best teachers of these methods are pimps. And um, they're, of course, used in the, in the sex industry, which includes prostitution, pornography, um, Catherine McKinnon, a legal scholar, I think is, I think it attributed to her once said that, that pornography is the theory and rape is the practice. Um, and uh, I think that's where these methods are, are learned. Of course, they are also taught in fraternities and so on. Right, right, right. Um, great observation. I know we're, we're beginning to um, come up against our time, but there's so much more I want to get to. Um, um, the, the two other pieces around active work on the trauma in terms of trauma resolution for survivors or victims, active work on the trauma that's fostered by the secure base um, involving a range of psychological techniques and an advance to a new post-traumatic life, um, possibly broadened by the experience of surviving the trauma and all it involves. Again, um, because this could be a whole long time that we could get into this, I would uh, refer people to some of the other interviews that I've done um, with some other mm -hmm. folks around these issues of trauma and healing, and um, perhaps invite folks to um, tune in for an upcoming uh, podcast that I'll be doing with Dr. Bessel Vanderkoek, one of Dr. Herman's uh, contemporaries, um, and collaborators. Uh, yeah, a colleague, and, um, and perhaps move to something more specific to her, um, right now, unless there's something you want to say about that briefly, but I'd like to talk to you about your new project on Justin, justice from the victim's perspective. I think maybe just the one thing I would say is that um, where I think Dr. Van de Kolk has made many very useful contributions is um, in the exploration of new techniques, new methods for, um, for, for dealing with trauma. Um, and uh, I, I used to tease him that, um, he, uh, that he was flavor of the month and I was plain vanilla when it came to um, therapy techniques. Um, and he's right, because what we have for treating traumatic stress is not satisfactory. Um, it's not, um, it, it's arduous, it's long. Um, it's not, a, not something that's going to happen in three sessions. You know? And um, it would be good if we could 
by understanding the biology, neurobiology of trauma more deeply, find more effective uh, techniques for dealing with trauma. So that, that has been his quest. And mine has been really to focus on the, on the healing relationship and to say that, you know, much, much, as far as the evidence base for, quote unquote, for um, psychotherapy is concerned, the single most powerful predictive factor is the, uh, in positive outcome is the therapy relationship, the therapeutic alliance. So I, that's something that I just stress a lot, is that building, with someone whose trust has been so damaged, building a trusting relationship is the sort of uh, cornerstone, if you will, of, of psychotherapy. Well, and, and I also appreciate that it's not always only psychotherapy, because as you cite in one of the studies that you have there, that there are a variety of kind of um, sort of caregivers, if you will, that can show up for people in ways that are uh, consistent, as Dr. Bruce Perry has said, you know, with um, their care and sincere and um, really evidence a lot of the uh, qualities that you mentioned in the equality reel, respect, honesty, um, and, and really just, um, even as Dr. Vince Felitti said, you know, having that holding space, being a witness, listening. Right. Um, to, to groups, groups are wonderful. Support groups are, um, you know, because for many survivors, it's not just what the perpetrator did, but what the bystanders did or didn't do. What, what the community, what the, um, what, what the, the family or the people around them and that tolerated. And so um, having a group that says, we validate what you, your experience and we vindicate you, we say, no, you were not to blame and no one, no child is ever to blame for exploitation. The subordinate person is not to blame for the behavior of the the dominant person yeah. and so um so yes groups are important bringing it back to the 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 witnesses the society the the bystanders and and as you say that with the bystanders there's been a lot of conversation lately bringing it back to me too and times up movements and what's the role of men and i've interviewed mm -hmm. a bunch of men who are trying to do some of the work around that, um, some of whom that have been part of the uh, pro-feminist men's movement for decades, some right. for more like Rob Oaken, he's the, um, uh, the editor of Voicemail Magazine uh, mm -hmm. and, and wrote a book, uh, edited a book called Voicemail. Uh, Dwayne Hayes, the editor of Stand Magazine, which is a more contemporary pro-feminist men's magazine. And then um, Terry Reel, who is also in Boston, um, who's a relational life therapist that talks about patriarchy, and Michael Kimmel, who um, is the chair of the uh, Men and Masculinities uh, Department at uh, Stony Brook, um, all talking about the intersection of um, essentially patriarchy, masculinity, and potentially violence and, and, and domination. 
Um, back to this business of the bystander, and then again, back to the justice of the, from the victim's perspective, which I know uh, you say includes really vindication is what um, mm -hmm. uh, victims, uh, survivors are looking for more so than um, perhaps the kind of punitive uh, criminal uh, incarceration measures uh, currently uh, often offered to uh, survivors who, uh, th those who do seek and perhaps receive justice, that it still can be uh, failing them in a way. Back to the bystanders piece, what is your, um, if you could suggest uh, ways for men who may be listening to this who have been bystanders or may be bystanders or uh, in some way, shape or form right now are bystanders in the sense that they feel either helpless or overwhelmed, even just looking at their Twitter feed or their news feed, knowing that out of the five women they know, probably one of them has been abused in this way and not really sure what to do about it or even what to say. What might be a suggestion to them? Oh, I don't think it's terribly complicated. Just say how you feel. There's a, you know, uh, my, my grandson likes to watch Daniel Tiger, who is a, a, a cartoon character, uh, sort, of, sort of the grandson, if you will, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, um, it's a current program that has grown out of Mr. Rogers' work. Um, and I recently watched a, a, a program with uh, my grandson where Daniel Tiger and his little friends, um, they had to kind of deal with the situation with that um, not everybody was happy about and not everybody felt the same way. And, um, and they had a little song that went, it helps to say what you're feeling. So... Um, and I thought, you know, I'm glad my grandson is learning this now because <laughs> he's five and this will stand him in good stead later on. So, you know, if you, if you say, I, 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 I don't know how to be helpful, I, 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 but I would like to be helpful. I feel badly that this happens. How, what would be, you know, what would you? What would be most helpful? Ask. Um, that's not a bad way to start. Just being open to talking about it is already a huge contribution. And then, perhaps in alliance with some of the women you know, um, talking with other men about it, bringing up the subject bringing it up in not a ho-ho-ho male bonding way, but in a, this is a real problem we've got to deal with guys way. And that already would be a huge shift and a huge contribution. I'm, I'm sorry that we are not really going to get a chance to talk about the, the justice thing, but it, I, I, do, I am aware of the time. And I, well, I have more time if you do, but I don't know if you have another five minutes or not. Well, okay, five minutes. Um, yes, justice from the victim's perspective. That's a study that I started some years ago and then life intervened and I'm only just coming back to it now. But, but I, I, I did an interview with a convenience, interviews with a convenience sample of survivors of both a 
of both sexual and domestic violence, both men and women. It was a pretty diverse sample um, in terms of ethnicity, um, not so diverse in terms of educational level. It was not representative. It was People had more education than is representative of the general public. Um, and they got to me basically through um, colleagues who um, uh, in better women's shelters, rape crisis centers, victim advocates uh, in the courts, that sort of thing. So, and um, and I, I did in-depth interviews and then just looked at the themes that emerged and what seemed most, and I, and I really asked people to say, you know, okay, if you called the shots, if you got to determine what would happen, what would, what would make, is there anything that would make things right? And what would make things, what would come close to making things right for you? And what people talked about was, first of all, acknowledgement um, of both the facts and the harm, but not just acknowledgement by the perpetrator, or it mainly not even, the perpetrator wasn't even the main point. It was the bystanders, the community, acknowledgement by the community. Yes, this happened. Yes, this was harmful. We believe you. So that was part one. Second was vindication. They wanted the community to denounce what the perpetrator had done, to lift, if you will, the burden of shame from their shoulders and put it on the shoulders of the perpetrator where it belonged, to say, this was wrong. We don't approve. This should not have happened. Um, that was part two. Um, whether the perpetrator acknowledged or not was not that important unless they thought that only a confession by the perpetrator would convince, say, their families or the important people in their lives that this was true. Um, apology was a mixed bag. Some people said if, if they could really, if they thought the perpetrator was genuinely remorseful, genuinely understood the harm he had done and wanted to make amends. And um, that would be wonderful. But that is very rare, unfortunately. And what they really didn't want was the, the, the politician apology. I'm very sorry if anyone was offended, you know. Or, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if these overreacting hysterical women were, you know, somehow, if anyone was somehow offended by something I did, um, no. Sincere uh, and heartfelt. Yeah, that, the slime apology they did not want. They said that would make things worse. Um, and then in terms of punishment, they were not that interested in punishment. What they were interested in was setting social limits on the perpetrator's behavior so he wouldn't harm other people. That was the main thing. And if that required something like prison, okay, but in most cases, people felt like there should be some ways of 
limiting the behavior short of that. Um, and so they weren't that into punishment and they were also not into forgiveness particularly. They were not into, what they wanted ultimately was, um, as, one, as one woman put it, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. And what she meant by that was just letting go of any thought that um, the perpetrator mattered. You know, as, as another survivor said, he doesn't need my forgiveness. He needs God's forgiveness. And luckily, I, I don't have anything to do with that. I've got enough to do take care of myself. And so what most people wish for was just a, a future in which the perpetrator wasn't that important anymore. Right. So. And that they felt witnessed and that they felt heard. Yeah. Right. It was about them and their community and about controlling the perpetrator to the extent of protecting others. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I know that we are out of time. Um, I would, I would, I would ask you for, um, you know, more, but I know that we don't have time for that. I do have to leave. I appreciate your uh, work in uh, these books, Trauma and Recovery, and um, the um, beginning of the dangerous case of Donald Trump as well. If anybody's interested in that, that's another tome. Dr. Judith Herman, for all of your contributions and for being here on Wise World today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Much appreciated. Bye now.